This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Let's get right to it because we've got a great guest when it comes to COVID-19 and the virus. And there's a lot of things on our minds. Back with us is Dr. Chris Byrer. He is professor of epidemiology and public health and human rights at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported, of course, by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. He's also senior scientific liaison at the COVID Vaccine Prevention Network. He is back with us on the phone from Baltimore. Dr. Byrer, how are you? Very well. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. How do you think we're doing uh, in the United States when it comes to the vaccine rollout specifically and getting ahead of uh, the the mutants that are out there, the mutations, and getting to herd immunity fast enough? Well, the good news here really is that we have two uh, very safe and effective vaccines, the two messenger RNA vaccines, um, the Moderna and the Pfizer. Uh, those, of course, are both two-dose vaccines. They have not had some of the same problems that have emerged with the, um, with the Janssen, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine. This is the, the challenge that has been uh, rare uh, but nevertheless, um, significant complication of blood clots. We don't see those with either the Pfizer or the Moderna. So uh, our vaccine rollout is going uh, really very well. Um, we're over, you know, uh, now 3 million uh, adults being immunized every day. Um, and we're expecting uh, emergency use authorization uh, for the Pfizer vaccine to go down to 12 to 17-year-olds as well. That may happen fairly soon. Can we get uh, out of the pandemic, though, if people under the age of 12 cannot be vaccinated? Well, about 25 percent of the American population is children under age 18, Tim. So uh, it is very important that we learn as quickly as we can uh, if these vaccines are as safe and effective in children as they are in adults. Um, That process uh, is mostly being led right now by the companies themselves. Uh, The trials are underway. Um, We have the data, as I said, from the uh, 12 to Uh, 17-year-olds. We really need to accelerate the research effort for the 5 to 12-year-olds. Um, right. And of course, that's so important for them for, you know, getting back to seeing their friends and getting back to school and, and getting back to active life, which uh, we really need for our kids. Right. Getting back to, you know, a so-called normal life. The thing is, I mean, bottom line, vaccines are the way out of the pandemic. Done. Right. No question. No question. So if we don't get to herd immunity, what does our world look like? Well, right now, we we have a couple of very specific challenges. People have described this as a race between the vaccine rollout and the emergence of these new variants, the mutants that you were mentioning. And that really is a challenge. Uh, Some of these new variants uh, are more infectious than the viruses we first encountered. Um, Some of them uh, have more resistance to the broadly neutralizing antibodies that we've been using. 
and at least one for sure, the, the variant that was first identified in South Africa, uh, does appear to be a challenge for at least the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, the good news is that they both the uh, messenger RNA vaccines, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, and as far as we can tell, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, do appear to provide good, robust protection against the variants that are circulating now. Uh, but what we're learning with this virus is that mutations keep happening, uh, and we really have to get ahead of those mutations. The big challenge right now is that the vaccine rollout is stalled in much of the rest of the world. That's because the rest of the world doesn't have the same access to the messenger RNAs. They were relying on AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and we are seeing huge surges of infection in places like India and Brazil, uh, much of South America, in fact. Uh, and if we can't do better with getting control of those epidemics and getting those populations immunized, uh, the current generation of vaccines may be undermined by these new variants. Uh, that's a real threat, and, and we're working very hard to prevent that scenario. So, Dr. Byra, what is the, the solution here? I mean, it sounds like what the only the only thing to do is to for the U.S. to take a leading role in making sure that the rest of the world is vaccinated. I think that's absolutely essential. I think there are going to be a couple of important steps in that direction. First of all, you may have seen that earlier this week the European uh, Medicines Association did approve going forward with use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine mm -hmm. uh, with a guidance that um, there is a rare but serious complication associated with blood clots. Most of those have been seen in uh, women under age 50. Um, so uh, there is uh, going to be a guidance. There's a hearing on Friday with the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. This is the U.S. Uh, independent body that, that gives guidance to the CDC. I think many expect in the field, um, they have been collecting and looking for more data on the blood clot. It's very likely, we think, that they are going to do the same thing as the European uh, regulatory body, which is to say they will approve continuing use of that vaccine with the guidance for providers uh, with, with the caution about uh, the rare blood clots. Uh, they, they have right. apparently identified a few more cases, but it seems like it's a handful, and roughly we're talking about one in a million. I want to get right back to Dr. Chris Byer, Professor of Public Health and Human Rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, also Senior Scientific Liaison at the COVID Vaccine Prevention Network, still with us on the phone from Baltimore. Uh, Dr. Byer, uh, a listener uh, listening in on our conversation has a question for you and basically is asking, how can we as parents in good conscience, in conscience um, ask our kids to get shots when we have no data to support the side effects on kids. Furthermore, this disease is not a real risk for anyone under 30. Deaths under the age of 18 represent 0.000701%. Basically, they're saying that kids are going to be okay. So why are we going to maybe potentially put them at risk by giving them a shot? How can we do this in good conscience? Well, the first thing to say is, of course, that we wouldn't ask anybody to have their children be immunized until we have the data. And uh, so those trials are underway. Uh, and as I said earlier, the 12 to 17-year-olds uh, data from the Pfizer uh, uh, trial uh, is going to the FDA um, and, uh, and being reviewed. So, 
So I, I think the caller is absolutely right that um, we need to see those data, and parents are going to want to see that before they immunize. I think it's a, a common misconception to compare COVID-19 uh, disease and deaths in children with those in adults. The real question is comparing COVID-19 disease and deaths in children with other vaccine-preventable diseases in children. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, the close to 300 children who died already of COVID in the United States uh, looks actually like quite a severe Hmm. uh, number of cases and a vaccine-preventable infection, we hope. So uh, I think that's more compelling. Um, It's also the case that um, while children have had much lower uh, rates of illness and death from COVID, they've had a very high burden of non-health issues. The social isolation is hard for kids, the developmental issues, the educational issues that parents are so concerned about. And we think particularly for the 12 to 17-year-olds that uh, vaccination is really going to help them be able to engage again in sports and after-school activities and being with their friends. Uh, so those those all get weighed in. The, the non-medical uh, complications of COVID for kids have been severe. Uh, Dr. Byer, I, I just want to ask about messaging around vaccines because mm-hmm. uh, there there has been this idea that you know we're still wearing masks after getting a vaccine, we're still being cautious, uh, and, and I'm wondering if it's sending the the wrong message about the benefits of the vaccine. I had Dr. Amish Adalzer, one of your colleagues from the um, from the Bloomberg School of Public Health, on our show a Quick Take earlier today. And he's all for, you know, eating in restaurants without masks after getting a vaccine and really going back to everything that he was doing before the pandemic hit. Well, I think, you know, it is really important to say that these vaccines have high efficacy against this virus and particularly against serious disease. So uh, we can do more. Uh, The CDC guidance is very clear that immunized folks Uh, can meet at home, can meet indoors uh, without masks. Uh, That's a huge difference for families and friends, people getting together. Um, There also, the CDC guidance is also that immunized people, and this is fully immunized two weeks after your second dose with either the Pfizer or the Moderna, uh, and if J&J is approved again on Friday, as we think it may be for emergency use, then two weeks after your one dose of J&J, uh, that people can travel. Uh, we still want people to wear masks. Uh, we still want to keep that social distancing, although now uh, it has been changed for the CDC from six feet to three feet. That's very important uh, for getting kids, for example, back into school. Just very quickly, 30 seconds here. The U.S. has come out and basically banned international travel to most countries. Would you agree that we need to stay home, at least for now? And just quickly, if you could. Yes, right now, I think given the variants that are spreading in other countries and the surges that are underway, uh, domestic travel in the U.S. is uh, okay for fully immunized people, according to the CDC. International travel, we have to be very careful. What a great interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Byra. Thank you, thank you. Professor of Epidemiology, Public Health and Human Rights over at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. I feel like we had a checklist and we were like, let's get through this. We got, we we got through know. them all. Yeah, we yeah, did. Important comments about kids, too. Yeah, very much so, because uh, we've got to be thinking about that. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
In the finance section of the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week, it's the app that made trading easy, Tim, and maybe even just a little too hard to resist. Uh, we are, of course, talking about Robinhood. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the remote from Brooklyn. And Mr. Lena Igafapulu is personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. It is a fantastic story, Joel. My understanding is it was months in the making. How, why did you approach it this way, right, about the design of the app? I think that that it was rooted in um, uh, Missy's original idea, which, which was, you know, we we know what Robinhood um, represents now, and we know how it's um, caught on, but you know, where did it really come from? And so she dug into sort of the the a little bit of the early days and what the design uh, kind of looked like very early on, and and found an interesting character. So so <laughs> Missy, tell us who you found. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I think sort of echoing what Joel is saying, you know, the entire Robinhood phenomenon that we've seen sort of pan out in the past year ultimately comes down to its app. And so as we were reporting the story out, you know, an important part was figuring out what the influence was. And that's where Nir Yal comes into the picture. This is uh, the author of the book Hooked. And he's basically known in Silicon Valley for his work on behavioral design and habit-forming apps. So he basically spent years studying the methods of some of the most popular companies in Silicon Valley, um, how they were basically using design to get users to come back to their apps. And so Nir Yal was sitting at a cafe back in 2012, at which point he was teaching at Stanford and his work was sort of already out um, through his blog and through news articles. And he was approached by a young man who recognized him and said, hey, we're working on the first no fee trading app. Uh, can we show it to you? And Ayal agreed and had a few meetings with this young man who turned out to be Baiju Bot. And he's obviously the co-founder of Robinhood. Um, and along with his uh, other co-founder, Vlad Tenev, they would launch Robinhood um, a year later. And I think what that really signifies is this idea that, you know, Robinhood is different from the other traditional brokerage firms. This is a, a platform that has used these tried and tested Silicon Valley methods, uh, this playbook to sort of turn an app into a habit where users feel the need to check in constantly and log back on. And I think, you know, if you take a closer look at the design, you can find different aspects of it that point to that. Well, that's what, let's go, let's pick up on that because I loved reading your story and I was going through and kind of counting all these cool things that they do on the Robinhood app and whether it's making it very simple, whether it's providing a mystery gift, whether there's a hierarchy of data by using different font sizes. You know, these are things that you might not think about when you're using it, but it definitely influences how you use it and maybe how often you might come back to it. Definitely. I mean, you know, the successful Silicon Valley apps have basically used uh, specific things, right? So first of all, you have triggers that pull users in, and those exist in the form of notifications or emails that pop into your inbox or that show up on your homepage on your phone. Then, you know, you have an app that's basically really easy to use. Um, and so it makes, you know, it as easy as possible for the users to do what they came in the app to do. And then it also involves rewards, which sort of builds anticipation for the users. And on Robinhood, you know, a lot of people have focused on the animated confetti, uh, which is one of the most popular, um, you know, facets of the app that, that, you know, that Robin had to remove because it was getting so much scrutiny. But, you know, if you just look at how long it takes to sign up on Robinhood, it's a five minute process. Mm way shorter and way quicker than any other brokerage platform. You know, the first thing that happens once you sign 
um, in as a new user is you get a sort of scratch off lottery ticket that gives you a free stock. And so, you know, whether you're whether you want to invest or not, it doesn't matter because now you have this stock that you can come back to the app to keep checking. And so, right. you know, looking at that stock price movement makes you sort of more intrigued. Has that gaming um, feel to him yeah, a little it's bit. Like, it's, it's like a, it's, it's an app and it wanted to, as Missy, as you point out in your piece, it won a design award from Apple. It's not something that typically happens with a, an investing app. Uh, you mentioned I mean, the, the confetti, right? Regulators have, have pushed back on, on some of these elements of the Robinhood app. Talk a little bit about the confetti being removed and what Robinhood is doing about that. And I, I wonder too, if they're going to start facing even more scrutiny for some of these other features. And ultimately, in order to get ready for this IPO, they're going to have to uh, move away from them. You know what, Tim, they already are. I mean, you talked about the confetti. That was something that it kept coming up as regulators were looking into the company. And so the company ultimately decided to go away with it. And, you know, just last week, we saw the Massachusetts Securities Watchdog file a complaint uh, in the state seeking to revoke Robinhood's brokerage license. And that's a pretty big deal. Um, and one of the things that they kept uh, calling out in that complaint was the 100 most popular stocks list mm. on the Robinhood app. And what that is is basically uh, a list of stocks that are very popular among Robinhood users. And that's featured in a very prominent placement on the app. And, you know, what regulators are saying is, you're a brokerage firm, you can't do that because you can't recommend... Uh, stocks to to people. That's not your job. And you know what other people are buying may not may not necessarily be the right investment decision for you. And so that's something that's you know also caught the attention of of lawmakers in D.C. and something that they really honed in on when Vlad Tenef was down in Washington for that GameStop hearing a couple of months ago. And so that is a feature that you know Robinhood is really having to defend. They're saying it's not a recommendation. They're just trying to make their app more social. And so again, we go back to that notion that Robinhood is really trying to blur their lines between you know social media and right. investing, and it's it's tricky. So, Missy, I'm curious, having spent a ton of time um, with uh, the Robinhood app, the early days of the story, you've played with, with other apps, no doubt. Like, I'm curious, what did you learn about Robinhood as you worked on this story? I think that what's really interesting when you look at the Robinhood app is, you know, how much trouble they've gotten into for really trying to make this app as easy as possible. And they really have, in a very successful way, sort of broken the barriers of entry for anyone who's ever wanted to invest. And so ultimately, you know, this is a good app. There's no denying. I mean, you see it on the Apple, uh, you know, store page as number one very often, almost weekly. And that rarely happens with, with fintech companies, but Robinhood is always there. And so, right. you know, they should, they should be sort of proud for the design that they have on this app. It's really good. It's really unrivaled. It makes it so easy. But, you know, that's definitely not how regulators are, are uh, you know, embracing this. They think that they're, you know, they've broken all the barriers when right. it comes to protecting investors by removing all this friction. And I think that right. ultimately, you know, being too good can actually maybe come back and hurt you. Yeah. And you do wonder, listen, a lot of companies are out there to create an incredible app, but is it get a little bit complicated when you're talking about investors, maybe investors who aren't so savvy and there's a lot of money at risk. Joel Weber at Bloomberg Businessweek. Thank you so much. And uh, Missy Egolfapolo, she's, of course, of Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. 
from Bloomberg Radio. Tim, among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today about how the killing of George Floyd focuses U.S. business to really take a a close look, a deep look at its record on race. And someone who follows and reports on this at Bloomberg is none other than our own Jeff Green. Jeff Green is Managing Diversity Reporter for Bloomberg News, and he joins us now on the phone from Michigan. Hey, Jeff, um, how are U.S. businesses doing when it comes to actual quantifiable data about what they're doing in order to really examine their own record on race and, and change diversity within uh within their, their, their corporations. I mean, I think you really have to give it a capital TBD. I mean, we don't really know. First off, it's only been a year. It's really hard to show a lot of change in that amount of time in terms of, you know, hiring initiatives. There's very few people who set their targets to be like a one-year hiring. We know that a lot of companies made at least statements in support. There's been a lot of CEOs signing letters. There's been a lot of talk about adding pay for quotas but not a lot of action on that or pay for diversity success so it's you know it's it's it is one of those things where there's a lot of action a lot of noise a lot of activity but you really don't know um what's going to happen in 2025 when a lot of these goals are supposed to be realized and none of these ceos are still there like where we'll be why is everybody so slow on this, Jeff? It's not a new problem. It's been around for years. You know this. We all know this. It just really kind of smacked us in the face over the last year uh, and really made, I think, people <laughs> have a come-to-Jesus moment, as they sometimes say. So why why does this take so long? Well, I mean, there's two ways, you know, two ways to think about this. Um, there's the sort of the business. In the story, we talked to Dr. Lomax, who's the president of the United New York College Fund, and, and he... Um, was talking about that, you know, every, you know, all these companies, in fact, 81 of the companies we looked at said, we're going to do something more to recruit from historically black college and universities, um, which is great, but they have 50,000 graduates a year, a graduation rate of 36%, and everybody wants the Howard and Spelman grads. Mm. Um, what we really need is for all 101 historically black college and universities to get fundamental investment so that the 250,000 kids going there will graduate at a higher rate and then there will be more quality candidates available to hire from that system as well as of you know more participants in the black middle class I mean, it's, it's like i mean that's the one aspect of it is there's like the systemic problem that in this case the corporation probably could address and and i got an email today after the story ran and i don't think this reader meant to be helpful <laughs> or in any way introspective, but he said, if every company in your story had done everything they had said they would do, would George Floyd not have been killed? And wow. Like, you know, he's right. And that's the other part of this. There's a, there's a broader problem in society that CEOs and companies and letter writing campaigns and hiring can't fix. Um, they can play a role in it, but they're, they're all, they're, there's, there's issues in society that are also kind of I think people get this inflated sense of what a company can actually do, and maybe even companies get an inflated sense of what they can actually do instead of focusing on um, things like fixing the overall system for historically black colleges and universities, or you know ensuring that what that they're kind of going at the the basis. I have another example I could give. But yeah, I'll, I'll go pause ahead. there and let you ask more questions. No, no, go no, ahead. No, no, give give an example. example. Yeah. Okay, so Ken Frazier, uh, Ken Chenault, Ginny Remitty started this organization called 110, which I think is one of the most interesting things going on out there. The idea is that 1 million new black employees in 10 years 
in jobs that pay about fifty thousand dollars equivalent. So in New York, that'd be more, but in you know here in Michigan, in the in the Midwest, something like a fifty thousand dollar pay. And the key is these have these have to be jobs for people that don't need a four year degree to get the jobs because too many they're saying you know if you say you have to have a four year degree, even if you have the skills without the degree, you're shutting out a much larger percentage of the black workforce. And so IBM has been doing this already. Um, they're challenging more companies to do it. When they started, they had 37 companies. Last time I talked to them, they had 39. They now have 43. Um, as you do the math, there's no way 43 companies <laughs> can produce a million new hires in a decade. So, but I, and we asked another company why they hadn't signed on, and they, you know, they, was, they said they take a realistic look at where they can actually do things, and apparently that wasn't on the list. And I think that is this is a tangible commitment you can make to make change. It's hard. And, you know, 300 CEOs sign a letter, but only 43 companies sign up to do something measurable. And and that's kind of where I look at this is I think this is hard. It takes a long time. And um, if you're, you're, and people aren't comfortable being held to account. So, so Jeff, who who are the companies that are doing a good job at this? And then what exactly are they doing? And what can other companies learn from it? And we only have about 30 seconds left. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, some of what IBM has been doing is interesting in terms of at this end, you know, broader hiring, broadening the aperture. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think any of the companies that are in the 110, um, I think, Mm -hmm. are at least approaching it from a unique new angle. Right. And it does sound like you need to have some way of well, people have to walk the talk, they have to honor their commitments, but you have to be able to measure it right, so that you can hold people accountable, yeah. ultimately. Well, we asked 100 companies, show us your workforce as you presented to the federal government. So far, 37 have said yes. All right. But wow. by the end of the year, it's 71. So that's progress. That is progress. And I know you're tracking it all. Hey, Jeff, so good to hear from you. Uh, he is Bloomberg News Managing Diversity Reporter Jeff Green with us on the phone in Chicago. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Right, just about... 10 minutes left in today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up the Wednesday trade. We're pretty much hovering at our highs of the session. Charlie, just breaking down uh, the trade for you on this Wednesday. Let's get to Ryan Dietrich. He is Chief Market Strategist at LPL Financial. He joins us on the phone once again from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, good to have you back with Tim and myself. So we had two down days. I think people were wondering, okay, what's going to happen? Are we worried about earnings? Are we worried about another wave in the virus, at least globally? And then today... Here we are, we see a bit of a rally and people are seeming to buy into the economic recovery trade. And as a matter of fact, as I look at the trade here, we're seeing some buying into the close because we're just took another tick higher. No, you're right, Carol. Thanks for having me back first off. But we had the two-day sell-off and just like that, the buyers are coming in. I mean, at the same time, I don't think we sold off the last two days because people were worried about earnings or the economy. We know those things are really strong. The economy continues to open up. 
you know, one thing you're going to talk about what kind of worries us a little bit here, everyone knows the economy is getting better. Everyone knows earnings are strong. You know, some of the recent sentiment polls are showing the most most bulls we've seen, honestly, since January of 2018, put the call ratios are getting pretty low. That's not the end of the world. We've been calling for a while, saying things are probably going to go higher. But near term, everyone agrees things look good, so that contrarian us wonders, could it finally be time to have a little at least consolidation uh, as we enter the troublesome sell in May go away period, the worst six months of the year, right around the corner here? So what, what actually worries you, though? I, I mean, is it just a, a part of the calendar that's worrying you? I mean, what, what technically are you seeing uh, that has you concerned? Yeah, Tim, I mean, let's be very clear. You know, we've we're not extremely worried. I'm just saying there are some cautionary things coming up. In essence, you know, sentiment is getting a little over the top, a little too optimistic. You mentioned the calendar. You know, if you overlay the bull market that we've had since March of last year with, you know, approximately 80% gain, and you overlay that with the bull market that started in 2009, 2010, they're nearly identical. It's really amazing. But you know what happened in 2010 right about now? The market peaked, and you had almost a 16% correction into the summer months of 20, of 2010. Now, we're not saying that's going to happen exactly like that again, but we are saying after over 80% rally, things look really good. Let's not get too spoiled here. But, again, another thing that gets us is under the surface. You know, NASDAQ hasn't made a new high yet, right? It hasn't made new, new highs. Small caps have been underperforming. Some of the more defensive areas all of a sudden the last week or two have started to lead. These are just little cracks in the armor, but things we want to be very clear that maybe, um, you know, people should be open to more of a um, sideways consolidation or outright uh, kind of weakness here. What does it mean to you that the NASDAQ has not made a new high? Yeah, Carol, great question. I mean, that's, that's uh, one of those uh, chinks in the armor, right? You, you don't have total market breadth. You don't have everything participating, and that's that's normal. You know, but again, when we see that coupled with things like utilities and staples um, starting to all of us and real estate starting to uh, take a little bit of leadership, that with the NASDAQ not making a new higher, what we call kind of technical warnings, I guess you could say, and uh, that's kind of what we're seeing. Now, honestly, you look today, we're bouncing back nicely today, uh, but still, it, it, those are some of the things that have definitely caught our attention, um, even though the headlines are pretty optimistic. Um, what are you looking for when it comes to earnings? What, I, know, I know you're following technicals right. here, but are there big yeah. themes that you're looking at for earnings? Well, Tim, yeah, I mean, we wrote about earnings in our weekly market commentary earlier this week, or two weeks ago, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, and we said, then said we expected earnings to be up about 30% year over year in the first quarter, expected at the time to be up 25%, now over 80% of companies have beat um, earnings, and people think, okay, gee, maybe earnings will be up over 30% in the first quarter. So we think it's going to be positive, but the thing that gets us, you look at earnings, um, you know, financials and banks started things off really, really strongly, uh, obviously, last week, yet banks were flat last week, and they I know they're bouncing back today, but pretty weak. So there is a little bit of a maybe sell the news mentality. And we saw that at financials, honestly, last quarter, really strong earnings, kind of a sell the news. And then eventually they resolved higher. And we think that could play out once again here. Ryan, going back, though, to your comment uh, about the bull market that we're seeing matching up nicely with the 09-2010 mm -hmm. bull market, I do feel like they were very different market environments. No? Oh, no. Well, there's no doubt they were different. I mean, it's absolutely right. different. I mean, technically, you can look at moves and say, okay, it's very similar. But I do also think you have to take into account fundamentally what's going on. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, the fundamentals look good, but I mean, from the, just the technicals, right? We, we had almost a 75% rally in a year, right? That is like the greatest rally we've ever seen in a in a 12 month. But that's because we dropped it. like a rock, right? So yeah, I mean, I was, we I think, we knew clearly what the problem was. I mean, our economy shut down as soon as we figured out how we could start to either, you know, provide some support and then now start to open it up. We understand the bounce. I mean, it's very logical. No, it is. I mean, you know, the 34% correction, fastest bear market ever. Although at the same time, you know, that rubber band is stretched pretty far. I mean, you know, so we're, we're just being a little cautious there. But let's not forget, this is year two, right? Year two of the bull market officially started on March 23rd, um, you know, from we know the lows back in uh, 2020, a year later. But year two of the bull markets, Carol, they've been higher every single time since World War II. So we're not ignoring, we're just saying there's some, some worrisome signs. But any pullback at all, we would use an opportunity because this is still a young bull market, a hmm. young economic recovery. Is this really a new bull market or just a continuation? It feels like, it feels like we just had like a brief yeah. pause in the bull just, market a year ago. It was a big pause. Like a big major short. hiccup and blip? Speed bump? Yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, we do, th- yeah, we do think it's a major secular bull market that was likely born in 2013 when we broke out the new highs. But again, I guess if, you know, if anyone remembers what happened back in March, it sure felt like you know there are a lot of people yeah. that sold and a lot of people that got out. So it's, it, there's some good arguments either way, but we're still saying it's a let's put it this way it's a young economic recovery in our view because technically the nber still says we're in a recession no one believes that uh, but technically we still are and we think you know this new expansion is is alive and well and stocks will eventually resolve higher as they tend to do year two it's just a little more rocky and a little more troublesome historically that kind of plays out we see it that way okay so what concerns you yeah, well, again, just to put a bow on it, I mean, the overall economic, um, or no, I'm sorry, the overall sentiment backdrop mm. is, is a little concerning. Again, season at, seasonally, we do know, you know, the summer months historically can be troublesome, so that's out there. And then, you know, the Fed has said they're doing everything they can to keep things going. So could there be a policy mistake? Could the Fed eventually be behind the eight ball? Not our base case. But, you know, if inflation starts to creep up and what 44 percent of small companies, small businesses in a survey in Wall Street Journal just said that they are having trouble with supplies. Right. It's hard to get stuff all of a sudden. So could there be more inflation and the Fed uh, is willing to accept that? Could they be behind the eight ball or something that, again, not our base case, but something that we're watching out for? Hey, just quickly, uh, your thoughts on the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index or the semis overall. It's up 14, 15 percent so far this year. Uh, ASML coming out in Europe over. Overnight, and we got some very optimistic news from them. We saw the chip sector really helping out mm-hmm. the market trade. We're going to get Lamb research after the close. Uh, technically, how do, the, how do the semis look right now? Yeah, well, the semis are probably one of our favorite groups in technology overall. Um, you mentioned semis, though, that they're kind of like the NASDAQ, where they haven't quite been able to break back out to new highs where they were recently. And they've been struggling over the last week or so relatively. But overall, we think there's still strong earnings, strong fundamentals, and some decent momentum there. So semis uh, are such an influential group on the technology. Is and that because of the shortage, just quickly, like that you like it? In, yes. In, in big part? That's part in terms- of it. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. There's uh, there's shortage there, and demand is awfully, awfully strong. So it's a supply and demand story as well, absolutely. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Ryan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you uh, walking through the uh, final few minutes of trading here. Ryan Dietrich, Chief Market Strategist at LPL Financial, with us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.